0: Receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you he will by no means lose his reward let us pray father this is your word this is our savior speaking speaking to his disciples many years ago but the same word that has been spoken to his disciples over the centuries is now being spoken to us today i pray that we would grasp deeply what you intend, uh, what Matthew wrote here, what it means, and, and Lord, how it applies to us, and how we can be encouraged today by such a generous God that you are. Help us to be refreshed by your word, to be challenged by it, and to be encouraged. We do this all for your glory, and in worship of you, in the name of Jesus, we pray, God's people said. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. And we are going to go through this last few verses again of Matthew chapter 10. It's been a challenging chapter. Jesus says some things in this chapter that strike us, that are hard to hear, Uh, a lot of pain that has come out, that, that Jesus is saying, expect it, expect to be hated, expect to be uh, maligned, expect to be uh, mistreated in my name. If you're out there doing my mission, you're going to be treated the same way in many cases I was treated. Some Many are going to reject you and hate you, but then some are going to welcome you and some are going to receive you and some are going to have their lives totally transformed. And in this, chapter, Jesus has demanded much of his disciples. And we come to a close, though, now after seeing these these challenging hard words, hard sayings of Jesus, and we see him close this this mission teaching in, in a word of encouragement that, in essence, he's going to be loyal to them, too. So specifically, he's going to reward the great sacrifice and the simple service of his disciples. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, and we're going to dig dig out some really important truths for for believers in Christ today. Not only, again, was this, this is primarily intended for the apostles, the 12 that are going out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but we have principles of what it means for every disciple here in our day and age as well. And so one of the things we see here clearly beginning in verse 40 is that, point one, Christian mission is representative. Christian mission is representative. What Jesus is going to explain to his disciples, he's already explained it really in in the the previous verses of chapter 10, but he, he wants us to know that Jesus' disciples truly do represent him, not only though with the cost, but also with the reward. And that's what's beautiful here to see today. Verse 40, whoever receives you... Receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. We saw in this chapter, all the way at the beginning, that Jesus gathered his 12 and sent them out. Before he sends them out, he gives them this talk, he tells them what things are going to be like, he prepares them for the challenges, and then he sends them out. And then, then so it, we see this principle of sending and then also of receiving. Jesus had already told them, many are going to reject you, but then there's going to be some that are going to receive your message, receive the message of the kingdom, receive Jesus himself is what he's saying. Because when they receive you, they're receiving me, Jesus is telling them. And as they receive me, they're also receiving the Father. There's this incredible principle. And Jesus, it's amazing how he works because this this is his mission as well. He himself was one that was sent by the Father. The Father sends Jesus to this earth, born of the Virgin Mary, lived the perfectly righteous life, sends him to die on a cross for the forgiveness of sins, for the, for the payment of our sins, and raises him from the dead. He ascends to heaven where he's crowned victorious and rules and reign to this day. And then Jesus takes his his delegated authority and gives it to his people and says, now you go into all the world. There's a constant sending and a receiving in the mission of Jesus. And so just as the Father sends Jesus and then Jesus sends the 12, we see Jesus saying those who receive you in the same way are also receiving me and the Father. There's a reciprocal relationship. Now we can't just gloss over this Because really what this speaks of deeply is what the Bible teaches all over the New Testament, what's called union with Christ. We are united with Christ. And this is one of the most wonderful and and unseen, and this is why it's hard for us to grasp. There's there's too many Christians don't grasp the comprehensive, life-changing reality of union with Christ. What does it mean for you today? It's an amazing spiritual reality for Christians. We shouldn't quickly read over such glorious truths. A lot of times we things that are true of us, but we just don't see them. I think of the old fairy tale turned into the Disney movie, Rapunzel. Don't get focused on her long hair. Think of the story for a minute. She was born... Uh, with this magical power and the, the, there's this h- cruel criminal witch that wants that power. And so what does she do? She kidnaps her as a baby. And so Rapunzel grows up in, in the home in this tower of this, this horrible, cruel person that she thinks is her mother. And then later on in the story, what happens? She She discovers who her true parents are. And if you don't know the story, it's the king and the queen. She understands, finally, she's a daughter of the king and the queen. And how does that change everything else from then on out? See, it was true all along in the whole story. She just didn't know it. She didn't grasp it. She didn't see it. And my prayer today is that as you see this this sending and receiving that Jesus is saying, when they receive you, they're receiving me. Why? Why? Because we're united with Christ. The the images that the scripture speaks of are various when it speaks of union with Christ. And it's good for us to use our imagination. Imagination is not a bad thing. It's it's in essence imaging something in your mind that's not immediately visible to our eyes. And so we can say things like, keep your eyes on Jesus. And, And you might wonder, well, how do we do that? I don't see him. It's the eyes of our heart. It's the, it's the imaging of our minds, the understanding of, of, of f- keeping a focus on Him. When it comes to union with Christ, we see these beautiful images throughout Scripture. We see, we see in John 15 the relationship of a branch to a vine. I'm the vine, you are the branches. What a beautiful picture of receiving the life-giving fluid, sap, if you will, from the, for the vine. We can't exist apart from the vine. In Ephesians 5, he he uses the picture of marriage for the relationship of Christ and his church, that they've been united as one. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see the image of a body and a head. And Christ is is the head of the body, which is even a a, a bolder image in one sense because a husband and wife can certainly live physically apart from one another, but you cannot physically live without your head. (laughs) You're, You're... you're, you're intrinsically bound to your head, and it gives life. First Peter chapter two, Peter says it uses the image of stones in a building that are, that are being built. this great, beautiful building built, but these stones are alive. They're living stones. And so union with Christ is so important for us to understand what, what has happened for those who are believers in Jesus. It's an understanding and it's it's a knowledge not only of what you are saved from, but what you are saved for. It's communion, it's relationship, it's intimacy and it's mission. It's pursuing and living in the mission of Jesus Christ to go into all the world and to proclaim the gospel. It's so intimate of a relationship that in, in, the, in the book of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. We see Saul, the persecutor of the church, out there going to Damascus to, 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 to tear down Christians, to kill them, to arrest them. And Jesus stops him in his tracks and says, Why are you persecuting me? Well, I'm not, I'm persecuting the church. That's my bride, that's my body. And if you persecute me, you persecute them, you persecute me. It's an amazing reality. United with Christ. It means you're in Christ. As you read throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, you'll discover that never once does he use the word Christian. He never calls us Christians. His His common descriptor for followers of Jesus are not Christians. His his most common description is those who are in Christ. He uses it over and over and over again. And it can be so easy for us to just read over that little phrase, in Christ. But it's impossible to overstate the significance for Paul of being in Christ. Being in Christ is is the essence of Christian proclamation, the essence of Christian experience. It's the heart of the Christian message, being in Christ. In order for us to understand what it means to be sent and received, to to represent Christ and to represent his mission, I believe we must first understand what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ means that he represents us as his people. And we can understand that a bit, being Americans and having a representative democracy. We, we appreciate as Americans how representation works, or should work at least. <laughs> Our elected leaders are supposed to represent us. Their, their, their task is to go before the, the, the other leaders in Congress and such and have their actions and their words speak for us. Or if you're a sports person like me, maybe you'll understand this illustration better. Because when the running back on a football team scores the winning touchdown, that touchdown and that that victory are credited to the entire team. Even to the player sitting on the bench. Even to the player not even suited up that day. He gets the win. It's credited to his account. It goes even further. How about even the, even the fans sitting in the stands, right? We won. You sat there and ate a hot dog. What are you talking about? We won because I'm on the team. It's, it's my team. They all participate in another's triumph. Look, look at the biblical story of David and Goliath. Have you ever wondered why only two warriors fought that day? When there were entire armies gathered there against each other. It was representation. The giant Goliath was chosen to represent the Philistines, the enemy of Israel. And he issued this challenge, right? Choose for yourself a man and let him come to me. And if he's able to fight me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him then you shall be our servants and serve us. I represent my people. You you send forth a representative of your people. And so here comes young David, representing all of Israel in, in what should sound like a very familiar story to us. The young shepherd boy from Bethlehem, who would be king, fought as a champion on behalf of all the people. He was their representative. And David's victory was credited. It was, to use a biblical word, imputed to those he represented. All of Israel, we could say, was in David, even though they themselves were not active participants in the battle. And in a similar way, Christ represents those who place their faith in him. And if we are united to Christ, then then we're united To him in all that he has done for us. Christ represents those who come to be his so thoroughly that that we are said to have been, in Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ. Romans 6.4, we were buried with him. Colossians 3.1, we were raised with Christ. Ephesians 2.6, we're even seated with him in the heavenly places. It's a glorious reality. We're walking here on earth with both feet on the ground, and yet because we are represented in Christ, he represents his people, we're actually seated with him in the heavenly places. It's an amazing thought. It's an amazing reality. Some scholars say that Paul actually invented new words to describe this new reality. The phrase is crucified with or raised with, buried with, seated with. Each of those are a single Greek word that begin with the prefix sun, which means with. And those words from certain scholars say they didn't exist in the Greek before Paul coined them. (laughs) A new vocabulary was necessary. This reality was so amazing that that new words, in essence, were the only way he could describe who he had become because of Christ and what it means to be in Christ. When we are in Christ, every part of Christ's life, not just his death, usually that's how we think of it as Christians, it's not just his death, even though that would, would be amazingly enough, But it goes so deep and rich, it's not just his death. We're united in him in his life. And that has deep significance for us. We share his life, his obedience. His perfect obedience is credited towards sinners like us. We're united in his death, his resurrection, even his ascension. We will reign with him, the scripture says. It's a glorious thing. How how can such things be? Because God, in the person of Jesus Christ, assumed our full humanity in order to redeem our full humanity. In order to heal our full humanity. He came all the way down to us in order to raise us all the way up to himself to live in the presence of God. This means that our union with Christ is, is rooted and grounded in Christ's union with us in the incarnation, that He became man. And this is why we sing with Charles Wesley as his words come into sharp focus. Made like Him, like Him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. One of the most beautiful pictures that the Apostle Paul explains to show this union with Christ is to show how his life is hidden with Christ in Galatians 2.20. In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice the, the, the verb is, is a present perfect It means it's something that happened in the past with a continuing present effect. It goes on and on and on and on. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's amazing. Because if, if you're in Christ, you can say this with the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm united to him in his death. I'm united to him in his crucifixion. When he died, I died. And I now share in that death. He says, it's no longer I who live. The person I was before, before I knew him, is no longer the person that I am today. That old man is dead. It's helpful to us to know that the Christian life, it's not a self-improvement project. It's not about reforming the old self and and putting a band-aid on our wounds. We're talking about a whole new self imaged after Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. He goes on and says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh Tradition tells us that Paul, in the flesh, was a short, bald man with bad eyesight. And so when he says, the life I now live in the flesh, he, he knows he's, he's still himself. He's still uniquely himself. He's, he's, he's a little brash, and he's, he's a little bold, and he's certainly bald. His body and his personality have not changed. Jesus didn't give him new hair. He gave him a whole new life. In that sense, his person has been changed fundamentally. As he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith. Faith is how union with Christ becomes operative and powerful in your life. Faith is is a God-given gift that allows you to take hold of God's having taken hold of you. If you're in Christ, this is now the defining truth of who you are. Your life, your, your, your story, it becomes enveloped and enfolded by the, by the Jesus story. That's one way to define faith, if you will. Faith means finding your identity in Christ. When you look to him constantly because you're looking at yourself isn't worth it. We look to him and he's our treasure. We live by faith in him. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, which is unusual for Paul to write this way in his letters. He's unusually personal here in this verse. He doesn't talk about himself that often. But here he wants, he writes personal because he wants it to be utterly personal for his readers. Utterly personal for you. He wants you to be able to say along with him, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And he gave himself for me. Amazing reality. A few years ago, I read a a story of a woman who was in Mickey. We're talking about being in Christ. She was in Mickey. She used to be Mickey Mouse (laughs) at Disneyland. He was the girl in the costume. And she was reflecting on her time of being in Mickey, and she said these words. She said, growing up, I thrived on behavior modification. I thought, if I'm good, I will be loved. If I'm bad, I'll be rejected. And so I learned to wear a mask, not to show what was really going on. My core beliefs were that I wasn't worthy, I wasn't accepted, I wasn't loved, so I would clamor and manufacture ways to elicit the positive responses I wanted from people. And when I put on Mickey's costume, I got that positive response times a thousand. She felt loved, covered in Mickey's righteousness, if you will. She also said she gained a new sense of what it means to be in Christ. She recalled praying, Lord, is this what it's like to have masses of people run to you with joy, excitement, and eagerness? It's another little picture of what it means to be in Christ. You're completely safe, completely accepted, hidden in him, covered in his righteousness. He represents you before the Father. He covers you. Your your sin. He covers your shame. He covers your weakness. But he covers you in a very real way. It's not temporary fiction. That you take off when you're done with your shift. Being in Mickey. <laughs> or any other mask. That we might hide behind. Is It's just just masquerading in a false identity. But being in Christ, it's to discover our true God-given identity. You are alive in him, moving with him through this world, proclaiming his kingdom, his gospel to the world. And when you are proclaiming, he is proclaiming. You're clothed in all his benefits, in all his blessings in Christ. Christ has truly united himself to his people. And in that union, his people now represent him on this earth. And this isn't just a declaration to agree with and say amen. It's an objective reality for us to live in. Christ has fully atoned for you. He is now with you, and he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you, and he is assuring you that with him, you not only have the resources to overcome anything that threatens to overwhelm you or harm you or malign you or hurt you, but you have all the resources you need to advance his mission around the world. We are his people. We are his church. And when he sends us, he goes with us because he's in us. They, the twelve, went out to Israel by faith to represent Christ. And when they received the twelve, they received Christ himself. And we go out today to this world, as we'll find out at the end of Matthew, sent by Jesus on a mission, on a mission to make disciples of all the nations. And as we go out by faith, we represent Christ. What an incredible thing it is. But it gets better. Look at verse 41. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. What is this showing us? This shows us the amazing generosity of God. That when God gives gifts, when God gives rewards, he gives them in an amazingly generous way. You see, the 12, in essence, are are prophets, are righteous men. Little ones we'll see in the next verse. And not everyone is a traveling preacher. But when ordinary disciples support the mission, they gain the rewards of prophets and righteous men. That's what he's saying. As one treats Jesus' agents, so one treats Jesus. And this is right, because they're doing his work in his name. They're carrying on his mission. And so when it says the one who receives a prophet, in some translations say in the name of a prophet, in the ESV it says it, because he is a prophet, because he, he is a prophet, you're going to receive the reward that that prophet gets. That's an amazing thought. It's an incredibly generous thought that the ones who receive them are counted as being right beside them in the battle, right beside them in the mission. And as fellow soldiers, they're sharing in the, in the soldier's spoil. They're sharing in the rewards of a prophet or a righteous man. It's an amazing thought. Here I am up here preaching today, right? You might think, well, the, the preacher gets a greater reward because he preaches and declares the word of God. You get a reward by listening and bringing it into your heart. They're not, it's a beautiful thing. We're all sharing. We send missionaries around the world. They're doing hard labor, hard work. And our sending them and our praying for them and our supporting them financially and, and helping meet their needs we share the rewards it's an amazing thing God's a very very generous God. you might remember the story from first Samuel chapter 30 where where David was was uh, being you know chased around and, and the uh, the Amalekites, as he was out to battle, he, he left his family there in, the, in Ziklag, and then they, they, he and his army go out to fight a battle, and they come back, and the Amalekites had taken all of the stuff from their city. All of the wives and the children and the people, they're all gone. They, they carried them away captive, and then David goes after him. At first, he was, he was downcast, and his men almost wanted to kill him. Like, What did you do to us? What position did you put us in? But David inquires of the Lord, he encourages himself in the Lord, and they go after the, the Amalekite army to rescue their people. And they end up rescuing them, and, and, and as they're on the way to rescue them, there's a bunch of guys that because of the previous battle are just worn out. They're tired. And so David says, you stay behind. You watch the stuff. Stay with the baggage. And you rest. We're going to go finish this. And they go and finish this, and they come back, and there's this argument. Because David says, in essence, the guys that stayed with the baggage are going to get the same reward of the spoils as the guys that fought the battle. And the guys that fought the battle don't like that. In verse 25 of, of 1 Samuel 30, David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. A lot of times we might be down on ourselves and thinking, well, I'm not on the front lines. If you're a Christian... And you're living for the glory of God no matter what you do, whether it's changing a, a, a little baby's diaper or going to work tomorrow morning to, 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 to proclaim the, the goodness of how Christ has changed your life, whatever it looks like, working hard, writing a check to support some, a missionary or the work of the church, every little thing like that God blesses and says, you're get rewarded the same as anyone at the top. There's no top in God's co- economy. you you all the same. It's, it's Jesus' mission, not mine, not yours, it's his. And if it goes towards his mission, he blesses it and you get rewarded. It's an amazing thought. Hebrews 6.10 tells us, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. You ever felt like that? God, I'm tired. Lord, I'm working hard in, in serving you see? Be assured, he sees. And Jesus tells the disciples, the ones who welcome you are going to get the same reward that you get for going. It's an amazingly generous God. It goes even further, it gets, gets even better. Point two, Christian mission brings reward even for seemingly insignificant acts. Verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. These little ones. There's different interpretations. A lot of commentators have different thoughts about who those are. Some say it's the 12 apostles. Being the little ones, some say it's, it's those who are the smallest kind, you know, the, just the smallest uh, invisible people. The humblest of Jesus' followers. I say, why not both? These are humble followers of Jesus, the 12 that are going forward. And, and as we apply these verses into our lives today, we understand little ones to be the ones that look seemingly insignificant. And it's a remarkable statement. Jesus promises to reward people who do no more than show basic human kindness to his humble followers. Remember the situation. The context, immediate context, is the 12 apostles that are sent out and they arouse opposition and and, and even murderous hostility. And anyone that gives them a cup of cold water or a simple meal, In such a circumstance, in essence, they're also risking a lot too, aren't they? They're they're risking being cut off from their families. What? One of those apostles came and you let him in the house? Do you want to be his disciple too? We're of Moses, not of this Jesus. So we shouldn't minimize the courage that it would take to do a simple act of kindness like this. At the same time... I think it's incredibly striking that Jesus doesn't expect everyone to join in with the 12. He doesn't limit his rewards to those who are engaged in dramatic public ministry. He doesn't even limit his rewards to people who, who give open and active support to the 12. A cup of cold water. It's pretty minimal. And Yet Jesus has Incredible promises and reward for these two. I think it should—it should show us that in many ways we're far stingier than Jesus, aren't we? Before we promise rewards for serving Jesus, we want to see some real commitment. A cup of cold water? <laughs> Kidding me? We want sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> Don't just read Matthew, study it. No, don't just study Matthew, memorize it. Nothing wrong with those things. But we want to see someone become a prophet before he can receive a prophet's reward. Jesus, in his generosity, far exceeds anything that we're comfortable with. It's so free of generosity. It's an overabundant generosity that a lot of times we find offensive. How dare Jesus give a righteous man's reward to the guy who did nothing but receive me. I have put in a lot of time. I put in a lot of work and a lot of effort to become a righteous man. <laughs> and we end up like Jonah sitting, pouting underneath the tree while he's angry at God's waste of mercy. May we be a generous people as well. A cup of cold water. I'm preaching. And there is reward in this. I'm thankful for God's allowing me to serve his church in this way. I don't take it lightly. And I long for the reward. And he gives me great tastes of it even nowadays. But behind this curtain <laughs> is a Dylan and William, William, the senior pastor of South Bay Community Church, serving us on the soundboard. Dylan, faithful to serve to make sure that the words are up on the screen so we can follow along. And you, countless acts of service that are unknown, that nobody claps for, that nobody is, is amazed at. They're just like a cup of cold water given to a thirsty soul. You ladies yesterday who went to Summer's Pass Farm and shared your life for those hours and encouraged one another and prayed for one another and just caring for one another. Every simple, uncelebrated act of service, every offering given, every cup of cold water gets a reward. What a generous God. What a generous God. Countless little things that no one sees. Friends, Jesus sees. He sees you. He knows your struggle. He knows the challenges. And he knows your service. He sees you. Point number three. Those on mission need rest. We already finished chapter 10 with verse 42. But I thought it helpful for us to kind of know the end of the story. Matthew doesn't share in his gospel what happens when the disciples come back. But Mark does. And in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 32, this is what happens. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, unfortunately, or maybe I should say fortunately, they didn't get much rest when they got there. (laughs) If you keep reading Mark, you see the crowd followed them and showed up before they even got to the shore. (laughs) So Jesus planned this retreat. And there's thousands of people there on the other side waiting for them to serve more. And that's when Jesus ends up feeding feeding the 5,000. But I think it's helpful for us to understand what Jesus sees and knows about our humanity. In verse 42, again, we saw that Jesus tell them, Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The active mission of proclaiming the gospel and encouraging one another, which is part of proclaiming the gospel, understand. You know, we don't just need to hear the gospel once. Our souls need it every day. We need to feast on who Christ is for us every day. But Jesus knows that the These efforts are laborious, that we're human beings, that we're not supermen. And so there's this principle that we see Jesus set forth of report and rest for further mission. Come, report and rest. Be encouraged, be strengthened in your soul. The mission will remain unfinished, even when we're spent in ministry. There's more work to do. There's always more work to do. Come aside and rest for a while. And I think it's important for us as believers to understand the importance of rest and what that means and, and looks like, what that means for those who are, who are laboring hard out on the field, and how a church, a local church in particular, particular treats one another Treats those who, who serve, treats the, those, their missionaries, treats the elders, the deacons. It says a lot about that church. And in that line, I, I want to commend you, Helix Church. I want to commend you because you know how to honor and support and to bless those who serve you. You know that Pastor David and I are not supermen, and you don't expect that. There are some churches that expect their pastor to, to be nearly demigods, and, and they, they, they run them ragged, and they put, they put ministers and, and, and servants to the church, gifts to the church in position, which is almost impossible to have any th- thought of long-term ministry from. I was so excited. Pastor David texted me earlier this week and told me he was taking his family to Disneyland. It's going to be gone like two and a half days. I got that. I nearly did a backflip because I was thinking of little William running around like seeing all the characters. And I'm like, he must have been a joy to see. How beautiful. How wonderful. But then I had this thought as I was studying this passage. I thought, there, there, I have pastor friends of mine. Who would have to think twice about going to Disneyland with their kids and wife because their church congregation would judge them and be like, why are they taking time two days to go to Disneyland? How'd they afford that? Why are they going there? What's going you know, on? Just horrible pressure that they would put on, on, on pastors and, and, and such. And it happens to missionaries, it happens to servants of God who are on the front lines all the time. It's the old adage that comes with a, with a toxic church culture that says, we like our pastor poor and humble. God will keep him humble, and we'll keep him poor. <laughs> this is not Helix Church, and I thank you for that. But may we even increase it towards one another, towards our missionaries, towards people that we love and serve. We should be jumping for the opportunity to refresh anyone on the front lines. And that's not just the ministers, by the way. Do you know you're all ministers? And our job as, ministers, as elders is to equip you for the work of the ministry, for service. You're a minister. And as a minister, as you're working hard for the Lord, you need rest too. You need to guard your family time. I've seen churches and programs in churches kill families. because They overwhelm them with, with time commitments that they have to make. It's like the old poem says, Mary had a little lamb, it given her to keep, but then it joined the local church and died for lack of sleep. <laughs> May we be those who regularly check in with Jesus, if you will. Report to Jesus. Report our words, our works, and our ways to him. And we live every day as one who would give account to Jesus for what we say and what we do and how we serve. And how did Jesus respond to the report that the apostles gave? He said, come away for a little while. Let's go to this desolate place and let's rest. Let's rest. Let's celebrate. Let's share some meals. Let's enjoy one another. Let's sleep a little bit. This is a wonderful picture of the concern, the gentleness, the the wisdom of Jesus that he has. And he didn't grade their efforts. He didn't stand there with his checklist. He didn't use it as an opportunity to, to teach them and train them further. He didn't immediately give them their next ministry assignment. He he was concerned about the toll that their ministry efforts had on them. And so he called them to come away from the crowd, get away, retreat to a quiet place and rest from their labors. How beautiful of our Lord. He knew, obviously well, Psalm one hundred three, fourteen: for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And brothers and sisters, as weak people, As real people, we need regular time of rest and refreshment and relaxation. Not so you can check out of your spiritual walk. (laughs) We never check out. I was was telling Ellen and Shauna the other week, I don't like the word vacation. I know we use it, but the American mentality is vacation. I vacate. I get out of my life because I don't like my life. That should not be the Christian life. I like holiday much better. Everything's sanctified in the kingdom. Make your rest holy. Recharge your batteries. Why? So you can kick your feet up more? No, so you can get back to work. We have a mission to accomplish. We have a job to do. Our God has been faithful to, to, to work through us as his church, as his people. Let's make sure we don't burn ourselves out in the process. It's a spiritual challenge. And the truth is, many churches exist by the 80-20 principle. You've heard of that, right? 20% of the members do 80% of the work. 20% of the members give 80% of the offerings. But that's not the way it's supposed to be in the church. Paul exhorts all of us in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so we see, we've seen in these short few verses that we do have a labor. Jesus gave the 12 their mission. We have a mission to go make disciples. We have a mission there wherein we represent Christ to the world. We understand that Christian mission, this mission we have, it brings great reward even for insignificant acts. At least they seem insignificant to us, but they're not. Don't ever be afraid to do the smallest of things to bless somebody, to encourage somebody, to help somebody. And then those on mission need regular periodic rest. May we make sure we take our time to do such. In conclusion, J.C. Ryle Said these words in his commentary on this passage. He said, Let us ask ourselves as we close the chapter in what light we regard Christ's work and Christ's cause in the world. Are we helpers of it or hinderers? Do we in any way aid the Lord's prophets and righteous men? Do we assist his little ones? Do we impede his labors or do we cheer them on? These are serious questions. And they do well and wisely who give the cup of cold water whenever they have opportunity. They do better still who work actively in the Lord's vineyard. May we all strive to leave the world a better world than it was when we were born. This is to have the mind of Christ. This is to find out the value of the lesson this wonderful chapter contains. And so the application by implication is clear. Brothers and sisters, it's hard. Press on. Get over rejection from strangers and friends and family members. You will receive a reward. Sacrifice your own passions and priorities and pursuits. You will receive a reward. Take time for the least among you who are neglected and suffering and oppressed and downtrodden because you will receive a reward. Because our God is an incredibly generous God. Let's pray as the band.